Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I apologize. Our website was down most of the day yesterday. It's back up today, although uh, eagle-eyed visitors to the site will note that uh, the material that is up is um, uh, sort of the latest is from the second week in December, we had to sort of go back to an earlier backup version of the site that sort of lost uh, three weeks of material. And uh, we're trying to figure out why it happened and uh, prevent it from happening again. But uh, I thank you for your patience if you were attempting to, to visit the site. Uh, with me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. This is Noah's... Oh, you can respond. No, I'm sorry. Hi, John. <laughs> this is uh, Noah's going on vacation. This is, uh, we're, uh, this is our last show with Noah for uh, 10 days? Yes. Okay. Back on the 14th. So we will, we will, we will shoulder... I was about, about to say we will shoulder on without you. Though, of course, the term is soldier on without you, but maybe I am obsessed with the shoulder because I am following with horror this story about the shutdown of uh, 95 south of D.C., um, which is like uh, a perfect storm out of a perfect storm in which uh, tr- uh, tractor trailers jackknifed. For some reason, they can't move. I don't understand. It's 20 hours. People have been trapped on the highway. Why they can't turn around and get off. It's, it's all very, very unclear to me what's going on, except that uh, once again, we are getting a sense of um, of how the competence, the essential competence of the of, of, of government is being called into question, uh, has been called in question over the last two years as almost never before. Uh, although, although I will say the Washington DC area, having lived here for more than 25 years is notorious for its inability to deal with anything weather related on its roads. And we usually have these shutdowns for snow that if it's literally a sprinkling and we, we are rightfully mocked by new Englanders for our hesitation and incompetence in dealing with snow yesterday and, and continuing into this morning's, uh, debacle on the interstates is, is largely in Virginia. But it is uh, it was a problem in the whole metro area yesterday that the plows were not at my street, still not plowed, a lot of plows missing in action. And the argument is that the people who who man the plows are uh, sick or out or didn't come in. And it is a it, it is a kind of interesting um, example compared to a couple of years ago when we had a big snow and the streets were getting plowed pretty quickly. Didn't happen this time. It uh, reminds me of this amazing thing that uh, the late uh, Nathan Glazer uh, said about the the change in the way government worked and thought of itself and government officials thought of themselves sometime in the middle of the 1960s when, uh, as he said, speaking really of local and municipal governments, that um, they stopped doing the things that they knew how to do well, like picking up the garbage, salting the streets, you know, cops on the beat, whatever. And then they try to do things that nobody knows how to do, like ending poverty. That was his great example. Like no one, no one knows how to end poverty. No one will ever know how to end poverty. Um, but that became sort of mission one. 
for these governments. And because um, if you start focusing on the abstract rather than, than the specific, it becomes very difficult to return your focus to the specific. Like, okay, we're going to have six inches of snow. What is the pattern that the snowplows are going to follow? How are they going to, which, what streets are they going to go down, turn left, turn right, go down, you know, do that. How do we do it? Where's the salt? Where the, when, how many times did the salt trucks come out and all of that? And, um, and, and now I think we're just seeing a kind of crisis in elementary competence that is related both to employment issues, like the fact that so many people are sort of out of the workforce because they got all this money last year, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in money, uh, uh, and 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 we're able to sort of stay out of the workforce, and apparently a lot of them haven't really gone back in. And because you know, uh, in a world in which uh, everyone's supposed to stay home, except when you protest, except when you're out uh, protesting for politically correct causes, the elementary roles of government end up getting suspended. Like everything, the focus is all out of whack, and so no also- one is committed to you know cleaning the, the streets and plowing the roads and the, the the concrete is very boring the abstract is so sexy because there's so much promise in what you can conceivably do uh but in you know what what you know that you've done already i mean it's it's kind of the story of our politics now which is that people got bored actually solving the the things that they've solved you know like so many aspects of our day-to-day life are 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 so dramatically improved uh, from from where they were, everything from poverty to hunger to you, you know uh, race relations. Despite what everyone says, it's like okay, we, we're bored with this problem solving stuff. You know, let's 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 do the let's do the big ambitious stuff. And then and then what happens is you know this happens. There's snow. There are floods and weather knocks out power grids. It's like it's always the ravages of nature. That that come in and like expose expose the folly for what it is. But you know it's interesting because there there are politicians who and you know and activists and all that who feel the way you do. And then I just remember this story about Bob Martinez. Bob Martinez was the governor of Florida from I don't know, he had one term as governor of Florida, nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety one, and uh, when he um, when he lost his reelection campaign. He uh, became the drug czar, he, the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, with, where I briefly worked. That was Bill Bennett's you know, original drug czar's office. And, uh, and you know, so a bunch of my friends worked there with him. And at some point, uh, you know, sort of like six months into his tenure, M- Martinez told a friend of mine that he hated this job and he hated Washington. He hated that he liked being a governor, because when you are a governor, you do things. People come to you and say, I got a problem in my town. You know, we need a traffic light or, you know, yeah. We, can we fix the, <laughs> obviously snow plowing is not really an issue in Florida, but, you know, can we fix this or can we, can we. Hurricanes are a thing in Florida. Well, he was governor when I was in high school. Yeah. Right. Hurricane so, awareness. Right. But anyway, he he basically said that it was awful because he was drug czar. So he had this kind of like celebrity position, but he had no power, no authority. And he 
he had no practical, there was nothing practical for him to do. And that there was something very satisfying in the, you know, in the role of an executive who could do things that would have a positive effect on people that were very specific. And that, you know, this was a kind of disease of, of, um, of expectation that, you know, you're only a serious politician if you somehow make it in Washington or have a, you know, major job in Washington, whatever. Just an interesting counterexample. Like, so it, 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 there are people who do want to do that and find great satisfaction in it, you know, and obviously it's like, when Andrew Cuomo, who is a psychopath, nonetheless focused on very specific, tangible things to get done, he got them done. You know, he built a new Tappan Zee Bridge. He he inaugurated. He he got them to finish uh, the Second Avenue subway, the three stops on the Second Avenue subway that had you know been been laboring for you know several decades. Uh, he. He started and pushed for the construction of the new LaGuardia Airport. Um, when he became, you know, the king of all things because of COVID, then you know he lost his focus, lost his perspective, and uh, and made a sufficient number of, uh, you know, having raised his head the way he did, he summoned the gods upon himself and and and. Uh, <clears throat> well, maybe and it's over analyzing everything, but COVID sounds like the the impetus for a lot of this. This psychological impulse you're identifying, this competence, ambition, disequilibrium, where as the pandemic has worn on and as it's become increasingly clear that <clears throat> there are no solutions to it from a technocratic standpoint, that the technocrats have grown more ambitious, their appetites have become uh, more insatiable, and, and their scope has broadened dramatically, perhaps as a response to their own failures. Well, what we wanted nothing more than competence in response to COVID. That's, I think, why Trump lost the election is that is is that he appeared incompetent. Again, you could say that in in the end, his administration did the one major thing competently that it really needed to do, which was get the vaccines developed and figure out the way that they would be fully funded, fully supported, and, 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 and the, ins the incentives were properly arranged to make sure that they could come to the market as fast as they did. Um, but it was that feeling that there was no hand at the tiller that made everybody like desperately, and you know, some of this was obviously craven politics, but look around for somebody to trust in a, in a time of great fear and instability. So it was like Fauci or you know, or Cuomo or whatever, even even Republicans did this, too. You know, with DeSantis, it was like, you see, he's he's really competent because he's not putting his foot on the on the on the brake or he's not, you know, he's not doing that. And and generally speaking, as you say, nobody nobody knew how to handle the pandemic. And as a result, well, that went when, back to what yeah. government does good. I mean, yeah. the Nathan Glazer uh, <clears throat> formula, what does government do? Well, it can write checks really well. Government knows how to cut a check really well. Government knows how to cut red tape really well. Those are the things it can do, and it did. And that produced the vaccines. And, you know, right. good for them. What it can't do is end the pandemic. What it can't do is distribute the thing right. equitably. It can't distribute the thing universally. It can't change human nature, which became the objective sometime in 2020. And is still, still is lingering, but we're starting to break out of that slowly. You know, I mean, one of the reasons that masks drive everybody so insane is that they became this, uh, 
uh, universal res- response solution to some element of the problem, right? Okay, so the first thing you got to do is put a mask on so either you don't spread the disease or catch the disease. It's not quite clear which, <laughs> what its purpose is. It seems to be more protective than it is necessarily protective of yourself rather than you know protecting others. Um, here we are, and it's almost two years later, and now they're saying that you shouldn't wear a cloth mask? I mean, I know that, by the way, every doctor I knew said, don't wear a cloth mask. I mean, every, every doctor I said, like, cloth mask is ridiculous. They can be, you know, you can really get stuff can penetrate, a, you know, cloth. So there's no, if anything is aerosolized or whatever, like it's going to get through cloth. But uh, a, a paper mask is 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 actually safer, you know, the N95, whatever you want to call it, or or a paper is it's just better. But you know, they, they suddenly having decided that everybody should wear a mask, having said nobody should wear a mask, then it was like any mask was okay. Well, maybe not. Maybe not like the turtleneck mask. You weren't supposed to wear the whatever that was called, the gator or something, right? The, but um, it's like, okay, so what are you saying? Like, what, what, this is why people lost faith in masking. It wasn't just that they hated masking, which everybody does, but that, but that anybody who was paying the least attention understood that there was something screwy here in the guidance. You know, it's like if you should, if you should only wear, N95, then everybody should wear N95s. If that's what doctors are wearing, why isn't everybody wearing it? Like, what, 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 what madness is this? But no, 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 you should go sew your own mask here. Here's a how-to on how to make your own mask out of, you know, out of an old shirt, you know? <laughs> and so that, like, desperate desire for competent guidance, we, we have been so failed so often, so frequently. And you know, again, I said this yesterday, but the consequences for the party of uh, the governing authority uh, over COVID um, is is going to pay a very, very, very heavy price that isn't going to be transitory. Not to use the inflation word. I mean, it just isn't because the 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 failure is so extreme and the lack of trust is so serious and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I said before we started the podcast, I really didn't want to just spend the whole time talking about COVID. But so maybe we can talk about something else. Noah, you want to you let's let, let's let's go to uh, the other really bad New York politician uh, who actually still holds office, which is amazing. Uh, Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, uh, who seems to be going down an inexplicably stupid road. Following Nancy Pelosi's inexplicably stupid road of the fall, we now have Chuck Schumer going down an inexplicably stupid road uh, here in the uh, in the winter. Well, it's possible that it's not totally stupid. So we're talking about the um, John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is the new object of desire of uh, the the. Senate Democrats and Chuck Schumer has said that, you know, since Build Back Better has failed, then they're going to get this one done come hell or high water. And that'll necessitate changes to the filibuster rule to get around Republican opposition. So just another one, another one little carve out for the filibuster, the legislative filibuster, which is why I said at the time that uh, Mitch McConnell's temporary strategy of passing something like that for the debt ceiling 
was was uh, an idea that would backfire and he would come to regret because you're weakening the legislative filibuster and this would weaken it further. Uh, and it's it's not impossible that this could pass. Joe, Joe Manchin has said that he's uh, broadly supportive of this compromise legislation because it's not H.R. 1. It's not the For the People Act. It's a little different and it's very complicated. Bottom line, it's a big change to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, to update it, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the preclearance formula in Section 4, which the Justice Department uses to say whether your voting laws or your redistricting map are equitable and therefore can be in place. And there are ridiculous amounts of violations that occur uh, to the various sections of the Voting Rights Act on a, on a regular basis, just to try to make this as plain as possible. It would essentially establish a preclearance formula that pretty much includes the entire country, which would get around the 2013 formula or the Supreme Court's objection in 2013, which said, look, the, 20, the 1965 formula wasn't supposed to be forever. We were various uh, rulings from the court said, listen, this wasn't going to hold forever. The Congress has to revisit this formula. They never did. And the Supreme Court acted on its decades of threats to to invalidate this provision. So this new formula would have a 25-year look-back provision. So if during the last 20, 15, 25 years, there were 15 or more violations of the Voting Rights Act or 10 or more voter violations that were committed by the state itself, uh, then you'd be covered by this provision. And the Justice Department would have to oversee your redistricting, your voter identification laws, your multilingual vo uh, voting materials, the early voting access, precinct locations, altering the voter rolls, everything basically federalized elections in a way that broadens the scope of the federal government's oversight of the state's sovereign right to oversee their elections. Um, because this is so complicated, it might just sort of brush past the average voter and maybe not make them very passionate. Um, but you know, voting rights violations can be inadvertent as well as malicious. Just not having enough Spanish language materials out is a violation. Okay. Uh, okay, or, so, for example, so a judge can look on the violation and say, oh, listen, because your your district has a certain amount of African-Americans and you've never elected an African-American councilman, that's a violation. That's just a judge's discretion. Okay. So this thing could get very broad very quickly. And it's, it definitely chills voting laws because now a jurisdiction would have to say and, and it allows states and its citizens or federal government citizens to sue easier, which means if you pass a law, it's not going to be implemented for Many, many years because it's going to go through a lot of challenges and it's going to cost you a ton of money to implement the okay, thing. Okay, but but so you're you're dealing with the substance, which is great. And Yuval Levin had a great piece in the New York Times yesterday about bipartisan concerns about election security and election safety and all of that that you could actually get a you could get bipartisan support for that is not this bill. And the very fact that you could actually get it. Uh, means that Schumer is acting in bad faith because he could get, you know, he get 80 votes for certain types of provisions in the Senate. And he's going for this, you know, uh, federal control of local elections and, you know, federal oversight, essentially, of local elections uh, game. But I, you're talking substance, which is all well and good. And you're saying uh, Joe Manchin says he kind of likes the bill. Well, uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema also says she likes the bill and said flatly in last month that she would oppose any changes to the filibuster to pass the bill, though she would vote for the bill, but she is not going to vote for it. So once again, maybe Manchin took took one for the team on 
on on build back better and cinema is going to be the one to hold the line on the filibuster you know it it only takes one of these democrats to uh, oppose this very radical measure because you know you 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 end the legislative filibuster for one bill uh you're not just ending the legislative filibuster for one bill it just means that now ending the legislative filibuster on x bill will be the first thing that's voted on it'll be like one of those things where it's the first thing you have to do in in the in pursuit of x piece of legislation is to remove the legislative filibuster and then you know and th then you can pass the bill by 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 50 votes plus the uh, plus the vice president so i that's why i think this is stupid he has been told in no uncertain terms that one of the 50 democratic senators is going to oppose it and here we go again nice big long lo loss big loss you know with big big talking you know big talking horse patootie there um, well it it also gives the lie uh to the democratic party's broader argument about democracy in peril because one of the things that Yuval's piece pointed out is that if you really look at the recent history of moments where we've seemed to be in crisis such as the election certification process that's where you have bipartisan support for fixing the kind of arcane and often um troublesome laws at the state level that that led to Trump and his you know crazy team of uh, lawyers attempting to exploit those weaknesses and sue for, you know, stopping certification of elections or challenging those elections. That's where the fix can happen. That's where you've all and, and, and others like libertarians at Cato, there, there've been a, there's been a kind of broad, interesting coalition on the conservative side that have that have agreed that this is something that could be fixed. And that's where the crisis point was in the last election. So the fact that the Democrats are going to grandstand in a few days about January 6th, which, as we all know, we agree was a terrible moment in in, in our recent uh, past, but then argue that the fix is is this meddles, meddling in federal meddling in state elections proves that they are not they're neither consistent nor well intentioned in terms of what they're trying to do. It's it's all messaging, you know. I mean, I, the, the 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 proposal itself, you know, it's it's not none of it is actually about the ends. You know, it's about it's about what it says about them, what it says about the Democrats who care about our democracy and about individual rights of minorities to choose their leaders and so on. It's also cosplay, though. I mean, it's a kind of totally. this is all this is all like I, we are the saviors of democracy cosplay. You know, I, I uh, there's a piece by uh, maybe the single most annoying pundit scholar person uh, in America over the last 30 years um, who known to me originally when he came on the scene as Jedediah Purdy, but now apparently has the name Jedediah Britton Purdy, um, uh, who wrote a book called something like On the Good or something when he was 11 years old and just like, like pompous, self-righteous, you know, Thoreauvian genius. So now he's a professor at Columbia Law School, which, you know, um, is a nice place, I guess. Anyway, he has a piece in the had a piece in the New York Times called The Republican Party is Succeeding Because We Are Not a True Democracy. Why are we not a true democracy? Guess why? Because of the Electoral College. Uh, he says the Electoral College, the Senate, and the Supreme Court all tilt in its favor. Today's Republican Party succeeds only because they tilt in its favor. Um, we're not a democracy. We've never been a democracy. This country is not a democracy. We are a republic. 
we do not have direct uh, the president is not directly elected for a reason it's a complicated reason it may be a flawed reason but 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 condemning america for not being the democracy that it never was is also part of this cosplay game which is it's all well and good everything is fine once you're winning when you're losing i mean barack obama got 369 electoral votes i mean that was fine that was only that was that was you know two elections three elections ago whatever you know it's like stop already you know you won you had you all had 60 senators and 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 a huge majority in the house and you had the presidency as 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 recently as 2008 i didn't hear anybody saying oh my god our democracy is at risk this is so terrible this system that it's all uh all about whose ox is being gored it always is it's and 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 turning it into this moral pageant when all you're trying to do is enshrine what you believe to be your advantages which i'm not even sure are the advantages we had a piece by chris starwalt last year about how the republicans seem to have fallen prey to the delusion that democrats have that the easier it is for for people to vote the more they will naturally vote Democratic and the more dangerous it will be for, um, you know, for uh, Republicans trying to win office. But there is absolutely, absolutely no evidence that this is the case. It's all based on a theory of negative politics, according to which what you want to do is suppress. Uh, you win through negative campaigning, and you do that by not by not by ginning up your own vote, but by by suppressing the votes of others. And and that, this is a this is a, a a whole world of Republican consultancy and Democratic consultancy that it makes its living off uh, how to structure negative campaigning to suppress uh, the other side's vote. And you know, therefore, they have a sort of uh, set belief in this notion that. Uh, lower turnout helps Republicans, and 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 they're they're probably wrong. What helps everybody is enthusiasm, and enthusiasm suppressing votes because you think people aren't enthusiastic about your choices. That's not that's not the right way to go. But but uh, you know this week is just gonna we're gonna get to intol- the level of intolerable self righteousness that is going to be expressed about. And you're seeing it now. Margaret Sullivan, the former ombudsman of the New York Times and media columnist for the Washington Post, who basically has now endorsed the idea that Republicans and conservatives should no longer have the right to publish op-eds or appear on television. Because they must, you know, because they might say something that says that Trump won. Right. <clears throat> she cited the New York Times op-ed, not op-ed, I'm sorry, editorial uh, from the editorial board that was headlined January 6th is every day now. Uh, and functionally, you know, said essentially that the extraordinary events of January 6th aren't extraordinary at all. Because on a smaller level, at a state level, and in microcosm and behind closed doors, January 6th is happening all the time. It is constant. It is everywhere. It is a permanent state of emergency, which requires a permanent emergency response. Uh, that's authoritarian. In its, its very essence, it is the nature of every authoritarian regime to convince itself that its emergency measures are merely a response to the extraordinary maliciousness of uh, some nefarious force here or there, which and, is also the basis for this voting rights law. 
So there was an Ipsos poll, Roy's Ipsos poll, you know, about whether people blame, you know, who thinks who is legitimate or illegitimate and who's to blame for January 6th and, uh, you know, who believes that Biden is a legitimate president or not a legitimate president. And it turns out, of course, that the number of Americans who believe that Biden is a legitimate president <clears throat> far higher uh, than the number of Americans who believe Trump was a legitimate president in 2017 and far higher than uh, Democrats who believe that George W. Bush was uh, an illegitimate president, both in 2000 and in 2004, based on these insane ideas about how uh, in Ohio, you know, they weren't letting people vote until two o'clock in the morning in this one tiny town of Mount Vernon, Ohio, which really could have turned the tide and and won the state for um, all, by the way, all of this ginned up by Christopher Hitchens, who happened to be giving a speech at Kenyon College at the time, the sainted, wondrous Christopher Hitchens. If I read one more piece about how his his, you know, the decade after his death, oh, how we need him now. He was a crank. He was an anti-Semite. I knew him very well. He was a very charming guy, but he was a crank and 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 a loather of Israel and an anti-Semite. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm frankly getting sick and tired of listening to this bilge about how wonderful he is, particularly since he is one of the authors of this idea that because somebody, you know, because he saw something through his drunken haze in Mount Vernon, Ohio, that the presidency of the United States had been illegitimately secured by George W. Bush in 2004. Now, here we are in 2022. We have to listen to all this liberal geshrying about how awful, about how, you know, Trump is the worst ever. They created this. They created the legitimacy crisis uh, in the presidency, uh, claiming Bush was not legitimate in 2000 or in 2004, and that Trump wasn't legitimate in 2017. Like, remember the faithless elector effort? Who came up with the faithless elector effort uh, from, you know, November until January? The idea that, you know, maybe they could re they could turn the election around by four by by by. Uh, doxing electors and getting them and scaring them into switching their vote and not and not uh, not delivering the electoral vote to the vice president on January 6th, 2017, so that so that he would be confirmed as president. Like, I am not, you know, what Trump did was awful and evil, and he he should have been, you know, he should have been convicted of it. And uh, he is a bad force in American life, but you know uh, the hypocrisy here is really uh, insufferable, uh, as 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 it so often is. And now I got to stop for a second and talk to you about the X chair, you guys. Um, you know, do you dread sitting down at your desk? I think a lot of people dread sitting down, not because they don't like their work, but because you know after about like an hour and a half they're going to get a sore back and uncomfortable and that's why you got to get an x chair because you know when you get one you'll actually look forward to sitting there and working because your body will feel so much more supported and comfortable more comfort more productivity so the x chair will pay for itself thanks to how much more work you'll get done every day if you're feeling tight or stressed you can just turn on the lmx massage feature choose from four different massage options and if your office is running too hot or too cold you can flip on the lmx temperature regulation and get your lower back either heated up or cooled down. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. So try the X-Chair for yourself, risk three for 30 days. 
Once you realize how much better your chair could be, you won't go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Anybody, uh, Christine, you wrote a piece about the um, uh, uh, Texas, as opposed to tech bro, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the you know the uh, the college dropout billionaire by twenty one creator of the magical one drop of blood home lab test that would tell you whether or not you 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 were diabetic or whether you were that you know whatever. And um, uh, by 2015, 2016, 2017, she was it was clear that her machine didn't work and that she had lied to investors and all that. And then she just just got convicted on, and I think in a very interesting jury finding, another example of the sophistication of juries. Another example, because they found her guilty of defrauding investors, but they did not find that she had harmed individual patients who had used her test, which, um, because they, they couldn't prove any harm, just that they had tried the test and it turned out that rather than when they did it, it turned out that they were sending blood to a to to a Walgreens instead of to the, the coming out of the machine. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But no harm was proved there. But the but the the defrauding of investors through deceitful uh, reporting on this uh, this technical innovation that never happened. So uh, g- give us a sense, given your history of writing about Elizabeth Holmes. What, what you yeah, think? she was she was always kind of an interesting figure because she was uh, hailed by the. The tech press in particular had long been looking for a female Steve Jobs, and she stepped right into the role, right down to like wearing the black turtleneck and mimicking the kind of language and style of it. But she turned out not to be a female Steve Jobs. She was a female Bernie Madoff. Like she basically had this whole financial scheme. And the only reason it succeeded, there's a wonderful documentary, I think it's on Netflix about her. Um, The only reason it succeeded was because she used her female uh, charms to charm a lot of older dudes who then gave her money and, and backed her and supported her. And she was brought down by the grandson of George Schultz, who worked for her and was was incredibly skeptical of, of some of the claims that were being made, as well as, and this woman's interviewed in the documentary, and I'm going to, I'm blanking on her name right now, but a professor at Stanford who had had Elizabeth Holmes as a student and was like, I'm all for women in STEM. I'm all for supporting women in an industry that's male dominated, but she just didn't have the goods. Like what she was saying didn't, didn't sound like it was possible. And, you know, when, when Holmes dropped out and became this, you know, on the cover of every, of every tech magazine and, you know, flattering profiles in every women's magazine about being the female Steve Jobs, this woman remained a skeptic. And when she's interviewed later as, as the downfall of Holmes, uh, begins, she said, she's like, I was always skeptical of her claims. I was skeptical of how she used her female charms to get her way. So she was in some sense given a pass again and again and again about the seriousness of her business because she she played the woman card and it was bad for women. It was bad, obviously, for anyone who gave her money because they lost it. Um, And it was also kind of sad to see how little reckoning there was from tech journalists in particular who had bolstered everything about her, had puffed her up, had had not been skeptical about what she was saying. And some of the women who worked for her and went to work for her because they wanted to work for a woman in tech who was that powerful and could be the next female Steve Jobs. So it was a fascinating, very, very 
uh, novelistic tale of, of uh, her behavior, but it came down to the fact that she just didn't have the goods, but she got away with it for a long time because she was an appealing woman. I, I, I sort of feel like it couldn't happen today. Yes, you could scam people. You could pe- people are getting scammed as we speak. But the celebration, I think, might not happen today because no one believes anything. No one trusts any claims. And everyone hates Silicon Valley. You know, I think uh, that's it, a, that's very important. This was at the is. height of everyone's love affair with Silicon Valley. You're exactly right about yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, um, having read the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, who was the who was the reporter who got onto this because totally by happenstance he was checking legal dockets and saw some very strange local suit. I think somebody against a Walgreens actually for an improper report on a blood test or something like that. And it, it, this like I, I may be eliding details but this kind of like it was like that there was the little door that opened you know i mean you know or or like the it was it was the way through the wardrobe into into the narnia that was theranos um or the net you know the anti-narnia or whatever you want to call it that was theranos and i think what was so interesting about it was this one little detail in the book which is you know there's a reason why when they take blood to test your blood. They take a vial full of your blood. The whole secret of what the Theranos thing was, you could have this machine at home, you would prick your finger, you would drop a drop of blood into a machine, and it would, ta- it would, it would issue a printout of what was in your blood at that moment. Like the printout that you get if you go to the doctor, they take blood and then they run your lipids and your cholesterol numbers and your ACL and what you know whatever. Okay. Um. So apparently you 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 can't do this with a drop of blood. It coagulates too quickly. Uh. It you know it um it's incredibly easily compromised by 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 being by any kind of human touch or, you know, it, it becomes a, a total spoiled thing if a finger touches it, you know, like that. Um, and so it could never have worked because the medium that she was working in was blood and you need more blood than a finger prick. Now you can use a finger prick uh, to get some kind of broad number uh, in terms of your sugar on one of these home diabetes tests. But that isn't a full report on the entirety of what is in your blood. It's like a, a test for one little thing at one given moment. And it's and it's not deemed accurate. It's like it's a kind of marker, you know, of whether you're going up or down or whether you're, you know, or, or whether the number is really frighteningly high or something like that. So you really need to watch yourself. A billion dollars. She basically fleeced out of people for a procedure that was never going to work and that for some reason no medical reporter ever said uh let me go talk to a hematologist who would say uh really it's a drop i don't know like you can't really get you know it's can't deal with blood that way 
Okay, but that's but that speaks to the fact that she was, as Abe mentioned earlier, this is this is pre everybody hates Silicon Valley. By Bi- Joe Biden as vice president went and visited the Theranos, you know, uh, headquarters. She was widely praised. She did a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was part of the sort of technocratic democratic elite, or was attempting to be part of that elite, and and people wanted to believe her. And that's why they didn't ask those questions. The media in particular, she was part of that crowd that should be believed, just like everything Mark Zuckerberg said was, was, you know, generally believed. And I think the Wall Street Journal in particular and that, and John Kerry, their reporting has been so key to several of these downfalls, right? I mean, they really, he did such meticulous research and really followed every single lead. And that's the only way this thing was ever brought to successful trials because he did the work, he did the research and the reporting. You know, the, the more I think about it, 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 it's for all the times that we lament everything that's gone wrong and continues to go wrong in the country, it's worth taking a moment to celebrate the fact that the the self-proclaimed well, I guess it's always a messianism of the of the of the tech behemoths that everyone had sort of bought into and like celebrated along with them has died. That was a that was a obnoxious period of time, you know, where we we had to endure, you know, this this new articles every day about the miracles coming our way out of Silicon Valley, and if you you know, we should eat like them and sleep like them and, you know, breathe like them and do whatever, you know, there's a strange, weird priestly association, you know, with, 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 with these, with these tech guys and all that stuff. And that, that, that's kind of gone. But, you know, it is, I think there part of this does come down to this feeling that life is out of control and that these people who knew, understood things about algorithms and numbers and coding and all that stuff that seems almost magical, that they knew what they were doing, you know, uh, that there were two or three of these guys and they really knew what they were doing. Like Steve Jobs knew how to build a fantastic machine. He built a fantastic computer. Then he built a fantastic phone. Then he built a fantastic tablet. And, uh, you know, Apple, as of yesterday, is now worth $3 trillion. Companies worth $3 trillion, it is by far the most valuable company the planet has, maybe since like the, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, the East India Trading Company or something like that. There's never been anything like this. And it's because these, he made these things and people knew that they were good. Um, and that had this enormous effect on all of this other stuff that, you know, people have generally tended to call vaporware, you know, kind of a program that sells for $300 million, an app that, you know, that is, is bought up by somebody or other, um, but, or, or something that, that you create to get venture capital money um, that never goes anywhere, but that basically you get a bite out of and the venture capitalist who funds you gets a big bite out of, and you lay it off on an, a stupid person who will pay twice or three times what it's worth and then lose their shirts. And it's a whole game that goes on. She combined the two because she was creating vaporware. That's a, a, a thing where you could at home <clears throat> know everything about your health on a, on, a, on a daily basis without any intervention from going, having to go to a doctor or go to a lab or something like that. That was a machine right? It was a machine she was making. So it was a machine the way Jobs made 
computers, tablets, and I and and phones. A physical product that would go in your house. But the idea was all vaporware. She made the machine. It didn't work. It never worked. There was never anything to the machine. It was like an empty box that didn't have any, you know, didn't have anything on the inside of it. It's kind of brilliant. But she called Edison, right? Wasn't yeah. it called Edison? Yeah, the another Edison. Another kind of right, yeah. hat tip to her own yeah. supposed genius. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I and, think I think the death of Jobs, by the way, is it was is a part of this downfall for different reasons because. Yes, of course, John, as you just said, Apple is extraordinarily successful, remains an extraordinarily preposterously successful company. It's not, I'm not talking about their, their, their ability to keep making money, but he had a vision that resulted in products that fascinated and dazzled with each new iteration. And that's kind of gone. Uh, totally even, if even, if even if you're an Apple person, I am, yeah. you use it, but it yeah. doesn't have that same ability um, to, you know, like enchant you right? The, the, the way the old products did. And that was part of it. Well, you know, he said of the iPad, I remember the, the you know, the sort of the, the presentation where he presented the iPad and there had been these efforts at tablets before. And he said this really interesting thing, which is he said, there's something magical about this thing. And he was exactly, he was, he was right because when you first saw it, it was like, who's gonna want this? It's like it's a thing. It sits like it's too big to put in your pocket. It doesn't stand up on its own. It doesn't have a keyboard. Like you know, what the what the hell is it? And then it turned out that it was this kind of amazing thing that did that was wildly intuitive, incredibly useful. Um. And 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 did have that quality that like a year, a, 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 an eighteen-month-old kid could pick up an iPad and in like five minutes figure out how to make it work. It's sort of an astonishing. I guess thing. We, should, nobody, we shouldn't yeah. allow this you know, moment of uh, backlash against a particularly uh, uh, obnoxious grifter <laughs> obscure the successes that the Silicon Valley, you know, now derided tech bros have have done i mean we've we've managed to privatize escape velocity like that's kind of a big deal and it's not something that was but even conceivable years ago but he's not a silicon valley tech bro to be fair like like elon musk is a tesla maker is. no tesla is a physical product now it's supported by massive government intervention but he didn't make an app he didn't make software he made a car he, he made an expensive car and now he wants to make things he wants to make a hyperloop tunnel you know that will get you to the airport in 20 minutes in la yeah, that would he be wants- nice what I, my problem is is that we're replacing this veneration undue veneration for uh technocratic uh elites with you know now we've come to the idea well nobody knows what they're doing if they don't know what they're nobody knows what they're doing so they should be stripped of their uh the, their unearned goods their unearned successes in life and it should be re- redistributed to everybody and anybody and there is no such thing as expertise i mean the backlash is underway and it's going uh, too far in the other direction well i agree with that and i think it was a point i wanted to bring up but before i bring it up and uh, endorse your view and then and then take it a little further i just want to talk to you about our second advertiser today headspace just give me a second here um you ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch or that tension is constantly traveling through your body? 
Do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? This is just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. This year, why not make small changes to your daily routine that have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. Um, we all say fine when we don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, is it? How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you really felt is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you, whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. So Headspace is an app. Uh, you use it. Uh, when I, a friend of mine told me when he found Headspace, he was unaware of how he really felt and skeptical if mindfulness could help. By using the app for a few minutes each day, it helped him feel better, let go, letting go of unnecessary stress, moving forward in life without anxiety. However you feel, you may have to try it to feel the difference. Um, so basically Headspace at headspace.com slash commentary, you get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash commentary today, headspace.com slash commentary. Um, so there's a lot of talk about how the Holmes verdict is a judgment on Silicon Valley, right? It's a judgment on Silicon Valley. And we really need to now people know, and they really know, and it's all this. She's just a scammer. I mean, every generation, every gold rush, every, um, every bubble produces these scams. You know, it's like um, Trollops, the way we live now is the story of a, of a, of a guy who claims, uh, Mr. Melmot, who claims that he has the franchise to build a, 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 um, a railroad across China and sells everybody in London is desperate to buy shares in this train across China that never existed, was never going to exist. It was a classic, you know, a financing bubble scheme. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that book was written in 1875. I mean, we have, you know, we've had crazes forever, the tulip craze and, and uh, yeah. And the East India company shares and all kinds of things. Every, it comes along constantly. Uh, and you have that guy, um, the Japanese uh, SoftBank. Is that was that was I'm trying to remember. Like, you had that one guy who decided that he was going to give Adam Neumann of uh, of uh, WeWork, you know, like fifty billion dollars, like you know, because he wanted to corner the market on something or other, and just happened to be in charge of a ridiculous amount of of, of free capital. Um, so, do do the fact that there are scammers who can do things like scam people like George Schultz and Henry Kissinger and Rupert Murdoch and, you know, people that I know and admire and have known for decades um, that 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 she was able to con them or, you know, just also that they have resources to play with. So they're going to throw some money at it, see whether it sticks and then they can lose it like like, you know, which is the whole idea behind hedge funds is you can, you know, invest, make risky investments because you, you can afford to lose them. Um. That's just like, that's human nature. That's 
bubbles are part of human nature. But I do think this bubble was the reason it's fascinating to people, uh, both before her her downfall and and now with her uh, conviction is that they, she was making a real thing. It really wasn't vaporware, right? It was, it was this device. It was a medical device, but it was couched in the language of the Silicon Valley promise. And I think that, that was something sort of new, right? Because up till then, people have been throwing money at things like Facebook and, you know, yes, people buy Apple devices, et cetera, et cetera. But she was promising some, some perfect melding of old-fashioned manufacturing with, and, and you know, American ingenuity with Silicon Valley marketing and, and, and uh, inspiration. And that was the thing. And it was all packaged up with this, I'm, the, I'm a unicorn because I'm a female Steve Jobs. Like that combination was incredibly potent, even to people who were not generally the type. I mean, you don't think of Henry Kissinger or Jim Mattis or some of the people who sat on the board of this company as being easily fooled, and yet they were. And I do think it was a number of factors, any one of which, had it not been present, might have raised some alarm bells for these folks. But of I course, think, no, so, so go ahead. in response to Noah's point, which I think is very interesting about sort of how we've swung in the other direction, and now the, the prevailing idea is no one knows anything and we don't believe in anything. That's true, but I think the problem is not in the sort of sudden lack of, of, of faith and gullibility. It's, we were never supposed to look for answers in people the way we had been doing in the first place. You know, I think the, the, the idea that there was this sort of earthly knowledge that, that was superior to everyone else's, no matter what the, that's, what the source is, whatever party you're looking at. Um, and, and that's, if we just rely on that, that's the way to go. I think that that was the mistake to begin with. That we were we were overinvested in sort of solutionism for, for in for the in the first place. Well, there is that bizarre, um, you know, uh, salvationist or messianic quality to a lot of Silicon Valley thinking. You know, Peter Thiel is going to start is is going to start islands beyond the reach of government, or you know. Uh, you know, they're all transnational. Uh, their uh, philanthropic giving pays absolutely no attention to the places that classic philanthropic giving is about improving the circumstances of the people who live directly around you and and where and where you do your work, right? So Apple's in, you know, the, the, the Apple's in Cupertino, California. Um, where's the where's the support for the housing for people who work at Apple or, you know, to change zoning rules and stuff or to build you know to 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 do something like Milton Hershey did to build you know housing for hundreds or thousands of workers um to make it to to make their their lives more livable or to you know create cultural institutions where you live to uh, enhance the lives and the cultural possibilities of the people in your area they have no interest in that they want to like cure malaria or you know or like say do global warming and all of that and there is this lack of groundedness uh to silicon valley thinking lack of um lack of local pride lack of national pride <laughs> lack of interest in in a weird way a lack of interest in like improving the material fortunes of the united states for that matter uh, they're all there, you know, and and who and they're all they've, of course, because this is the way of all things, they have all become uh, cow towers to a totalitarian regime in China uh, simply because they want the markets open there, uh, having claimed they want to save the earth, 
you know, uh, from global warming. They have no interest in saving one sixth of the population of the earth from the tyranny and into which that population has fallen. There's this, that is, that is part and parcel. And that messianism leads to these messianic, weirdly, bizarrely messianic figures like Elizabeth Holmes, a 21-year-old, it becomes a billionaire because she is going to disrupt the medical testing industry. Who the hell is she? Like, okay, I understand, like, if you're Thomas Edison or you're Steve Jobs or something like that, there are people who come along every now and then who have this, you know, flash of inspiration, ability to get rally support, ability to get backers and investors, and then you just charge forward. But but incepting, a, you know, saying, I am going to create the test that is going to do X, Y, and Z. And then nobody says, how is this going to work? Like, really? And then, of course, why, why did she have Mattis and Kissinger and Schultz on the board? Because they don't know anything about medical testing. Like, who would you want on your board if you were a medical? You would want, like, the head of the Mayo Clinic, the head of, you know, I, I mean, the world's leading hematologists. You know, that, that's who you would want on your board. She deliberately wanted people on her board who didn't know anything about the field that she was in. But this this is this really is in a kind of at a 30,000 foot level, the 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 uh, Achilles heel of Americans, extremely wonderful, as Noah was saying, this 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 ability to look forward and, and be be optimistic about the future and about our ability to create new things and do new things. Um, is the Silicon Valley has always been aggressively anti-historical, right? They don't care about history. They are start there. Everything's a new mold. Every problem that every sclerotic bureaucratic issue they can solve with an algorithm. That conceit, which actually does help fuel innovation because it, it, it allows them not to see or be bogged down in, in certain kind of bureaucratic constraints is also a danger if it leads to this kind of hubris because they really don't. It's what leads them to China. It's what leads them to to have a whole fleet of vans privatize uh, mass transit for their for their very wealthy engineers who want to live in San Francisco, but don't want to have to ride the BART, the crumbling crime infested BART transportation system out there. They find it an immediate and easy solution without it ever being grounded in any sense of what came before that was good and worth keeping or what came before that does need improvement. And that's their constant battle. It's the constant battle with social media in, in general, this ahistorical approach to every problem. You know, there's another thing to be said about this, which is why I wanted to you know, bring up the fact that the verdict said that she had defrauded investors, which I think is inarguable, but had not actually done any harm to individual people because they always had access to other tests and they go and they, you know, the fact that the testing didn't really work didn't mean that 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 they were that they were done harm. There's an argument to be made that if you defraud an investor, not on the open market, whatever, you shouldn't do fraud. Fraud is illegal, whatever. But it's like they got wiped out. You know, they were stupid. They didn't do due diligence. You know, smart people. But you know, again, they have a lot of money to play with. You know, million dollar investment to 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 a billionaire is literally pocket change. I mean, it's a penny in the pocket. It's not anything. And uh, and if you can get yourself into a position where you have a sufficiently compelling story to have someone say, "Yeah, here I'm throwing you a quarter. Go go off and see what you can do." And you get like you know a thousand of them. You know, that's a that's a billion dollars right there, and you become a billionaire. Um, 
and the whole thing is uh, is a is an object lesson in uh, for people afterward in not being credulous, um, uh, or it's an object lesson in you know what you win some you lose some and you you know you get defrauded you take the tax deduction and move on. I just don't know that there's a larger story except the human story of gullibility and all. There does seem to be an effort to. And this is where I think Noah's absolutely right. There does seem to be an effort to sort of make a larger point about Silicon Valley innovation and 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 the you know and and American decay and all of that. That just that this doesn't support. It's a, it's just a another in an in, in an endless line of Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing, whatever you want to you know all these kind of weird things that happen where people get 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 taken by snake oil salesman which is essentially you know what, what what she was and in this case you could say that since it never came to market it never you know it was never on the stock exchange or whatever everybody who lost money you know they have to deal with the consequences of of, of being fooled and hey it's a, it strikes a blow for female equality because women can be con artists too john Thank you. There's a whole that's a, that's a whole new yeah, category, there right? There's there actually that, uh, is. I mean, yeah, I under read the carry you book. What was her end game? Was this? I mean, it was never going to come to market and function. Okay, my theory. The end game was to get bought out. Well, it's always to get bought out, or the end game was to take it to. Here's my my theory: is that um, you know, there's a this is a whole thing we haven't talked about in relation to Silicon Valley, but you know, Steve Jobs is part. There, there's a whole level of I'm now going to curse. There's a whole level of Northern California hippie bullshit that is part of the ethos of Silicon Valley. And you could say that she was manifesting the Edison. The technology wasn't there. The equipment wasn't there. The material. But if you build it, they will come. If you hope for it, and it's like, you know, you hope for it long enough. And you string it along long enough before you actually have to bring the product to market. Maybe something will happen and there will be a breakthrough and they will be able to get enough blood. It won't coagulate and it will get on the thing and it will work. It's so just like build back you, better, really. It's like ah, build back better. Yeah. So, I, I mean, and that is part and parcel of the of the world of vaporware, by the way, is also this notion that um the people who do it believe that uh, you can go 70% of the way down the road with some product that is half-assed or in this case, 70%. And then, and then technological developments will follow along the course that you can jump, you can jump on the back of, and it will make your thing work just at the right moment where all these things will, um, you know, will, uh, will come together for you and you will be, you will escape the judgment of your investors and the justice department of all of that. Well, how long has Ray Kurzweil been talking about melding human brains with computers, right? That's, that's always coming. That's, that's the, that's the, the singularity is, is upon us forever upon us. It is, it is. And, uh, but I mean, he's, but that, that's all theoretical, right? I mean, that's the whole point is it's theoretical. Kurzweil is a theoretician. Like he's not, you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure we know this, right? There's all this like, oh, they're doing research. And then, you know, there's a helmet where if you think, then you, you then your car will turn right because it will read brainwaves. And then, you know, it's like you, re you read these things 
and you're like, oh my God, you know, they've really taken it. And then somehow that story mysteriously vanishes into the ether and is never heard again because it turns out it wasn't wasn't true, you know. It's amazing. I mean, there are amazing things, right? There's that amazing thing where people who have, you know, Parkinson's or these incredible tremors or something, and they dr drill a hole into your brain, they put some implant in your brain, you push a button, and then it's over. Like it, it has that effect. They don't even know how it works. You know, deep neural simulation or whatever it's called. Like they, they don't know how it works, but it, but it works uh, because nobody knows how the brain works. I, I just think it's an, it's, it, it, it's interesting because it's a fascinating story and, and, the one thing I will say, having used the word bullshit once, I'm now going to use it for the third time, that um, when you saw Elizabeth, if you were not somebody who was inclined toward credulousness, you went, wait, wait a minute. Like, this is before it all blew up. It was like, wait a minute. Like, if this machine is possible, why didn't Pfizer come up? Like, you know, like, how is a Stanford undergraduate coming up with the idea that there could be a machine that could do this? Weren't there 10,000 people? If this were possible, that machine would have existed already. That's part of the problem with that idea, I think. And that's where the ahistorical stuff comes in. Because you would say, it just doesn't make any sense that if it were to exist, and if it were this relatively simple that, you know, Quest Diagnostics wouldn't have come up with it and made itself a trillion dollar company instead of, you know, instead of like being a place where, where they had to rent out space, you went there and they took your blood and then they sent it to their lab and 48 hours later they got results. You think they wouldn't have wanted to make the machine that you could sell to your, you know, like that's who makes those things. It's not like a kid in the dorm room. It's like, I've got a fantastic idea, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's not it. This is just a, a testing mechanism. Uh, okay, so we've uh, we've uh, we've taken long enough with this, and you know, beginning tomorrow, we're going to have to talk about all this, you know, the, the the terrible threat to democracy and how everything is terrible. And Aha. Noah, Noah picks the yourself. right week to go on vacation. Noah, go on vacation. <laughs> go, right, do so not good. turn on the TV. I have no intention of it. Um, okay. So Axios, briefly before we go, Axios is reporting that the Trump-Bannon cabal want to counter-program the Democrats' remembrances. Uh, and to the extent that Axios is reporting is accurate and it's spotty in ways that make me sort of question what the plan is here. But they do suggest that the plan is for these figures, perhaps not Trump himself, but at least the people around him and his movement would be lionizing this event as an you know, the expression of pure patriotism and essentially endorsing the violence, which could not be more irresponsible and should give Republicans every opportunity they have so far declined to act on to say this is beyond the pale. But the strategy here is it exposes the extent to which the Trump movement doesn't really have a, a strategy. There's this poll that came out from CBS News right before we came back from the holiday break that was the headline is at, you know, two thirds of Americans think that political violence is just the, the our future, our destiny. It was gonna have political violence every four years as a result of uh, mostly Republican agitation. And you dive into the poll and you find out that most Trump supporters, and by most, I mean a majority, don't believe that 
the people who stormed the Capitol were typical Trump supporters. Um, some of them even think they're left-leaning groups. I mean, that that's still around. The idea that these were a bunch of left-leaning, uh, you know, agitators who were well, pretending that's the Tucker to be Trump Carlson, supporters. That's the Tucker Carlson theory. The like forty-nine percent. Yeah, so only nine percent of Republicans, self-described Republicans, described January six uh, participants as typical Trump supporters. And so the the Bannonite wing and the and even to the extent Donald Trump is willing to endorse a Trump himself would wrap their arms around this movement, a movement that is endorsed and embraced by nine percent of all Republicans. That's just stupid. Well, he is giving a to press say nothing conference. of reckless and irresponsible. Well, I mean, right. I don't even know what to make of. I mean, the, the fact that 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 the Trump Bannon wing even exists when Trump himself had to, you know, had to 86 Bannon because, you know, he was he was getting too swelled ahead sitting there in the White House leaking that he knew everything that should be done. This, you know, third rate. Brain dead clown, you know, who who got, you know. Half a percent of the Seinfeld syndication money and convinced everybody that he was somehow you know a, a genius investor and mogul um uh you know good let them let them let's see what happens you know let's see what happens i mean it, uh, my guess is that uh, none of this is going to make the slightest difference does anybody think that what happens is going to make the slightest difference the commemorations, the speeches, all of that. Like I said, the, the the November 2022 is baked in the cake, in my view. So I don't know what difference any of this is going to make. It'll add to the fatigue. I mean, that's that's my perception. Right. And then so that'll make it worse right. for Democrats, not better. Right. I mean, Noah, you said yesterday that Democrats have two issues, COVID and Trump. And nobody wants to hear about COVID or Trump anymore. No, Not that's nobody. the Axios poll. Yeah, that they said yeah. the, the thing they want to hear the least. It was a word association, you know, right. cloud, a word cloud. And the things that people want to hear the least are Trump and COVID. What they want to hear the most is travel. They desperately want an off ramp from 2020 and Democrats cannot give them one. Well, Noah, you're getting that travel off ramp. I want <laughs> you back rested. I want you tanned. I want you I want you full of you know, vitamin D from the sun and 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 high good spirits while we labor on here uh, in our plodding, crushingly morose way. So have a great time. Uh, Abe and Christine and I will be back tomorrow. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.